Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Dharma Toolkit podcast from the Buddhist Center Online. Welcome from me, Chandradasa, as we're heading into the, I was going to say the spring season. It's a little bit early for that yet. Where I live on the East Coast of the United States, we're still buried in snow. It did creep above freezing yesterday and today. So that's, I suppose, an early sign of spring. But welcome to the podcast. Welcome, I suppose, to a sense of connection. Hopefully some warmth, sense of your community worldwide. All sorts of people are in all sorts of states of lockdown as the pandemic continues around the world. And the point of this podcast is just to, yeah, welcome you into the Sangha, introduce you to people you probably aren't going to get to meet for a while at least until the world writes itself again. And I'm particularly pleased this week because... This is one of our occasional episodes where on the horizon, we have a home retreat coming up on the Buddhist Center Online, a whole week of curated practice, spaces to share with people, go deeper, even though you're at home, even though you can't go to a Buddhist Center. We're going to build this retreat for you that you can do in your own time, whether you've got lots of time to give to it or whether you've got kids and you're homeschooling, there'll be stuff there for you to engage with that hopefully will just keep you in touch with a sense of meaning as the weeks and months wind on. So in April, we're going to be doing this whole retreat called In the Footsteps of the Buddha, which is going to revolve very beautifully around storytelling and imagery and a sort of sense of practice that I suppose encourages you just to go deeper in yourself and be connected in all sorts of ways with other people and with the depths in your own soul, as it were. And we have today as our guests, Mandarva and Naga City from Rivendell Retreat Centre. And you should probably pause at that bit and just think it's called Rivendell Retreat Centre, which, you know, if you're at least in any way familiar with the Western fantasy tradition, (laughs) Rivendell is quite an image in itself. Maybe we'll come to that as we welcome our guests this week. But yeah, we're going to be in the safe hands of Mandarva and Naga City for this retreat. And we just wanted to talk to them about, well, what have they got planned? And also, if you've seen the kind of remarkable imagery around this retreat, I'm sure like me, you'll be curious about where these images spring from, because they clearly spring from somewhere beautiful. They're illuminated. When I was putting up the live event for this, it was one of the happiest experiences I've had of doing that because I was so in love with the images when I was doing it. Just the light in them, richness. And I sort of thought, well, yeah, this is going to be great. People are going to love to connect into this, whatever their home situation is. So I'm going to welcome our friends now. Mandarva and Naga City are in England. I'll let them tell you about their precise location and what they're up to in a minute. I'll welcome you first, actually, Naga City, because you're an old friend of the podcast. Some people may recognize your voice in a minute. You did a great episode with us called Into the Dark Wood about the kind of pathway of an artist through pandemic and just the making of things. So welcome. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Charles Dasa. It's lovely to be back. Thank you for the invitation. I'm in Forest Row in the small flat I share with Mandarava. We've been a couple for 17 years, coming up for 18 years. And we're in a place called Forest Row, which is uh, about 10 miles away from Rivendell Retreat Centre, which we both work at. And we've been living here for about the last three years in our little creative hub that we find ourselves in. And hello to you too, Mandarava. This is the first time we've had you on the podcast. I'm personally delighted to have you on the podcast. Feels like a small ambition fulfilled. So welcome. Hello, everyone. Nice to be here today. As Naga City said, we live in this house called Forest House, actually, which is a bit fairy tale like already. It's a bit like living in a story. We're in the middle of 
the edge of some woodland that I go out walking on each day during the pandemic. Yeah, looking forward to doing the retreat. From here, I'll be doing it from home and just immersing myself in the imagery of the forest and Naga City Boy at Rivendell. So nice to be here. Maybe Rivendell is a place we could start. Actually, I was really happy when we were in touch about the idea of doing something with each of you, but also with Rivendell itself, because it's got a kind of unique place in our community as a retreat centre. I don't think there's anywhere else quite like it. And I was curious as to what was your relationship to the fact that it's called Rivendell? I think it's possibly the only retreat centre we have that doesn't have a Buddhist or Buddhisty name. Yeah, I mean, Rivendell has a very interesting history in that it was originally built as a vicarage for the village of High Hurstwood. There's a lovely story, actually. It was created out of a gift from the local lady of the manor who didn't like seeing the poor of the village having to walk a great distance to church. So she very generously funded the building of a church, uh, the vicarage and a school. So I've always loved the fact that the place comes out of this act of generosity, an act of compassion in a way. So it was a vicarage for over 100 years and eventually it was sold by the church as a private house. And for a while it was a kind of a commune. A group of families lived there. And they also fostered quite a lot of children. So it has quite a rich history. And I believe, I'm not 100% sure, but it's around about that time that it was called Rivendell. The story goes that when it was turned into a retreat centre, they asked Sangharach to the founder of the Tree Ratna Buddhist Order what to name it. And I'm told he said, well, why don't you keep Rivendell? Because Rivendell is a refuge in the Lord of the Rings stories. And as a retreat centre, it provides a similar refuge to people. And I think there was a desire to connect up the Dharma with the sort of Western imaginative tradition. Interesting to know if there's corrections to that. There's something in the programme that is that quote from Tolkien that's really nice that I can't remember it. What is it in Augustine? We should look it up. It's about being the last homely village of the West. It's a really nice little quote. Shame we haven't got the programme with us, but anyway. I think it's called The Last Homely House. I'm interested in that thing about Sangharachita looking to connect with the imaginative tradition from a sort of Western cultural perspective, at least. One of the last times I was in the UK, actually, before the pandemic, I went to the Tolkien exhibition at the Bodleian Library in Oxford of his drawings from his life drawings and paintings and it was really striking obviously the connection between Tolkien and Blake and Tolkien and Milton and that whole sort of tradition of illuminated story and illuminated poetry and sort of a plumb line back into the mythic tradition of Anglo-Saxon and beyond. So yeah it's quite interesting to hear that story about that being an explicit part of why the name was kept. So we're going to be presenting this retreat, as Mandara said, from two locations. Like I said, you'll be there in the very beautiful Shrine Room at Rivendell. And it's not just going to be the Shrine Room in its barest form, is it? There's going to be a special setup. Do you want to tell us a little bit about how this is going to work? Well, anyone who's been on retreat with myself and Mandarava will know we have a tendency to turn our shrine room into rather an immersive interactive experience the visual and the imaginative are both incredibly important to the pair of us so we often try and make 
the shrine itself something that you enter into. One of the great things about the Shrine Room at Rivendell on a normal in-person retreat is it has a shrine at either end of the room. So it's like you're in the shrine rather than looking at a screen, which I really, really like about the Shrine Room there. Obviously, that's slightly different working online, but hopefully we'll be creating an imaginative world in which people can enter into and also hopefully encourage people to view the space they're in as an imaginative realm they can enter into and help create that you know in their home in their spare room wherever they might be in whatever form it doesn't have to be anything too ambitious but there's something about creating a context which opens the imagination Yeah, I think I really respond to this idea of creating a sort of sacred space. So both an internal sacred space in terms of your meditation practice, but also, well, for me, it manifests very visually because I'm a maker and I like objects and things and artifacts and have inherited rather a lot of beautiful things as well from my family. So as Nog City was saying, hopefully we'll stimulate and encourage a sense of people being able to find a way of doing that in their own homes and in their own places, both in how we lead and do the meditation practice and also how we're hoping to help people connect with the Buddha's story. And well, his environment maybe at times is again in this forest imagery, which is something I've become a little obsessed with recently, both in the pandemic, in the sense of where I live, but also as a mythic image. I think it's just really rich for exploring different aspects of how we are and our well, journey through life or through the forest, as it were. And yeah, part of the Buddha's story is, is set in that context. So we're hoping to play with that whole imagery, particularly for me anyway, using the forest. So as Nagasiddhi was saying at Rivendell, he'll set up a certain set of imagery there and I'll hopefully complement it at home. So the retreat is going to be doing a lot of things. We've talked about some meditation. We've talked about some sharing, some chances to connect with other people and also storytelling itself. And as you say, just creating that sort of imaginative realm. One of the things that I'm quite aware of for people listening is that, of course, they're going to be doing this at home. And that kind of transference, as it were, through the screen from the beauty of Rivendell and the beauty of the wood just outside Forest House. Presumably, you're not just doing this together as a piece of work. You're not just doing it as an event. The kind of imagery that you're talking about is actually something you both live in all the time. It's almost like you live inside these metaphors and they're meaningful. Given that people are going to be doing this retreat as an aspect of being at least semi-locked down, maybe even fully locked down still in April, how do you relate to this kind of imagery for yourselves through the pandemic? How's it going with all that? Does this stuff help? Personally, I just find images and metaphors, they're what give me a map to help me move my way through the world in every sense. So even with a lockdown, there's plenty of very rich imagery and metaphor. When you were talking, I was immediately thinking of those accounts I've read of people who've been held hostage, for example. I was particularly moved by Brian Keenan's account of his captivity and evil cradling, him and John McCarthy, and how even in situations like that, which is obviously the most sort of extreme form of lockdown a human being can probably imagine, it is the imagination that 
provides them with a sense of freedom and it's incredible the rich resources that human beings can have even in the most difficult experiences and often it is the imagination it is storytelling it is those dreams and visions that keep people going in those really difficult situations it's very very important it's remarkable what the human spirit can do it's interesting now I'm in one room and I can see Mandarava on a different screen in a different room and I can see the figure she's got that was carved by a German prisoner of war in the United Kingdom during World War One. and what an incredible piece of creativity that came from someone who was a prisoner of war. Quite extraordinary what human beings can do in any situation. We can be creative in any situation, I think. Just following on from that, During last spring, that part of the lockdown, although I'm very blessed with where I live, I still kind of found I was making use of what was in front of me to be creative with. So we would go for our walks and I'd pick up bits of twigs or bits of wood that I'd then bring home and carve rather than actually using bits of wood I had to hand even in the house there was something about making something out of actually almost out of dirt or of rubbish or of discarded things or of dead wood or something and bringing some sort of life into it or enchantment into it really somehow helped me through that time and often helps me actually. I remember seeing an image of a young boy in Africa and I think he'd made a mobile phone but it was made out of rubbish. It actually looked like it'd been made out of mud but I think it was probably a box but smeared in mud with some buttons stuck on it and I just was so moved by that sort of creativity. I love that sort of, yeah, you can do anything out of anything. You know, you you really can find things in front of you and to just make something quite quickly. It's interesting, this evocation of you walking through the woods and finding stuff, like finding the right thing for the moment. Is that something that you've both got experience of through the pandemic, easily finding the images you need to get you through and to work with? Or is there a kind of aspect of ongoing struggle with that, where the weirdness of the conditions require a different sort of trove of images and metaphors? Mandarva's more inspired by natural objects and I get more inspired by man-made objects. So I often take things out of skips or bits of wood and various other things. Amazing what you can find in a skip. And also there was a situation in the UK and still is where a lot of the places where people would take things like recycling depots and charity shops and things were closed. So there began quite a phenomena of people leaving things outside their house with a please take sign. And it was incredible some of the treasure that I found in that instance. And there was quite an interesting experience where I was wanting to make an aeroplane and literally the image appeared to me as in someone had left a book about aeroplanes outside their house and it provided this incredibly rich source of imagery for me. Also some fantastic Dutch apple sauce at one point and a Dutch bicycle and tall boxes, tall bags, all sorts of magic. And Robert Rauschenberg, the artist, will talk about the gifts of the street, which is an expression that I've always loved, the gifts of the street. And it's amazing how generous the street can be sometimes. So my equivalent was, as we were wandering, some of these paths are made up of rubble and old broken ceramics mixed in with the rubble. So I'd end up on every walk picking up little bits of 
broken china of all sorts of different colours and ended up creating a bit of a mandala around my shrine as a sort of, yeah, I suppose it's a bit like Hansel and Gretel following the thread or finding a pathway of jewels in the rubble. And also, yeah, like I said, recently I've been making a little Buddha out of some of the wood that I found on my walks, which I've got here, which is a bit ridiculous to show on an audio, but he's kind of been made out of bits of wood from the forest. And now that the mosaics that I've picked up surround him as well. So it's sort of like an unfolding story. And the forest I originally painted in the first pandemic, I want to enter into to follow the Buddha into that. So initially, that was the environment for a Jataka tale, which I translated using animals from the local environment. And now I'm almost wanting to immerse myself in that imagery that's already built up. And look for the Buddha, look for the Buddha in that, look for my connection and my story in that. And not just as a myth, but also using experiences that have happened recently or events in my life. Like my mother's not long passed away. She died in November. She didn't die of COVID. She died very peacefully and I was able to be there, as was my brother, and Naga City, we were there the evening she died. Well, even that experience. I was thinking of the four sites, you know, of old age, sickness and death, and how to bring that in to how we explore these themes on the retreat of the Buddha's life. I'm probably likely to bring in that experience in some way, in the way I create a certain setting in the evening and then you know invite others to have their connection with what personally is going on in their lives around those different rites of passage in the buddha's life that does bring us back to the retreat itself i like the evocation of it as an invitation to come into the wood with the buddha it's quite interesting that the buddha's own story is actually quite a forest-based story It's not an aspect that we always dwell on when we're teaching it in urban centres. We're interested in the content of the Buddha's teaching, but actually the Buddha's experience as a human being, as a human animal, even his environment is presumably a key part for what's going on. And the whole framing of his story as being set in the jungle and even doing a lot of his teaching and the cleading between the jungle and the village, that seems significant. He's not in the jungle then and he's not in the village, he's somewhere in between. I'm interested in whether your life experience over the years as Buddhists and working artists has meant that you relate to different bits of the Buddhist mythic story or archetypal story at different times. What's the most alive bit of that journey that the Buddha makes through the wood from the palace into the forest and then into awakening, whatever that means? I think for myself, it's interesting you talk about the wood because it is striking how frequently what a recurring motif the tree is in the Buddha's story. The Buddha was born under a tree, obviously gets enlightened under the Bodhi tree, and he dies between twin sal trees or experiences the Paranirvana. So trees are very, very significant. I mean, that's only three examples. There's many more. But funnily enough, the experience of the Buddha's life that I particularly find inspiring and touches me is another tree, is the experience of what's known as the rose apple tree, where the Buddha has been practicing quite extreme austerities this is before the enlightenment and he's made himself very very weak and ill by doing that 
and he has this memory of being a child sitting under a tree very relaxed very open quite joyous and very absorbed he spontaneously enters into some sort of meditative absorption and that becomes a kind of huge turning point for him where he turns away from these very self-destructive ascetic practices to something else it's interesting it's almost like an enlightenment before the enlightenment in a way and the imagery of that really really touches me it really touches me yeah i think it's a beautiful beautiful part of the story and i think has very very deep resonances outside the historic context that it has about how we relate to caring for ourselves not caring for ourselves turning towards life turning away from life and i think those are important issues whoever we are whatever time in history we are and that's why i think looking at the buddha's life story through this particular lens i find really really helpful i mean i think it probably is the what's it all about question i've had quite a lot of bereavements in my life i've got a lunar figure and the buddha and at the moment these are the two things i'm really interested in this is what is getting me going with my practice and one is is in a way about a descent and the other is about coming into the world and the more masculine I suppose the Buddha's story for me is a bit more of a masculine story in a certain way he was a man and just even the way we practice in Buddhism and in Tri Ratna is quite a masculine sort of approach generally speaking and then I'm also interested in a kind of more descent way of being and exploration of practice. And this story is about a kind of moon lunar goddess who goes down to see her sister in the underworld who's just lost her husband and she wants to go to the funeral and go to the underworld and she dresses up in all her regalia and she feels entitled and that she should be allowed to go to the underworld but actually it's quite a dangerous place to go in a way but she puts on all her regalia and she has to go through all these gates and take off one by one all her identity, her regalia. And then in the end, she ends up struck dead, naked, hanging on a hook by her sister. And then two little beings from the gods are sent down there eventually to sort of meet the underworld goddess, meet her in her suffering, and they echo back to her how she is. This is the myth of Inyana, which is from a, a completely different tradition, a Sumerian early, one of the oldest goddess myths. They're strong images, aren't they? I suppose listening to it, my name has got the moon in it and the figure that I was given when I was ordained as White Tara and some of that immediately resonates. I can feel the sort of mercurial light you know, happen just listening to these images. They're not just surface things, are they? So there is this interest in translation has to happen when you're leading a retreat, even if it's a retreat on a familiar story like the Buddha's journey to awakening. Well, it's often presented as an ascent into something, but actually in the dark of the wood, what's happening is probably something completely descent based for him. I'm really interested in how you find it being on retreat and trying to inhabit that. How do you stay authentic to the depth of that imagery and the effect it can have on your whole soul in a way? Is that something you find easy to do when you move into the realm of a retreat and you're holding something, you're holding space with other people? Or is that also kind of an ordeal as it were? I think I can stay really connected with my own depth of experience and imagery. 
And I suppose what helps with that is ritual because ritual is such a strong container and vessel and it has a kind of direction, has some sort of purpose. It has its own story. You know, if you set out a ritual, it has its story to sort of follow through. So, you know, obviously he was talking about well, the going forth of leaving the palace, what are you leaving? What are you moving towards? You can create some sort of ritual with that. So in the sense of going to the underworld, well, what are you facing that's frightening? And how can you meet that with love? And if you do that with a mantra and an offering of something significant, whether that's something you write down on a bit of paper or something you imagine, and you've got the collective holding that as well, I feel I can do that along with others. And that makes it even more powerful that you're doing it as collective, that you're tapping into everyone's letting go, everyone's losses, everyone's fears, everyone's hopes and what they're moving towards, or the moment under the rose apple tree, the contentment, those experiences where they felt complete peace or connectedness with things. I guess, yeah, what I do in terms of leading rituals is tapping into those fundamental experiences. And I have to feel that myself in order to facilitate something. And yeah, sharing personal experience can help others think, oh yeah, I've had that happen to me. So it is important to me to be quite personal because I think if if I'm not, it can feel a bit abstracted and a bit formulaic and the rituals then don't have as much meaning. I was just reminded of our podcast recently with Attila where he's talking about doing collective dream work on retreats. It can sound a bit abstract if you haven't done it, right? It's just what on earth does that mean, collective dream work? Yeah, he was yeah. talking about, he was saying it doesn't always work, but sometimes it really works. Like people are together in a space and over the week or the two weeks, whatever it is, something happens. You maybe can't see more than that. It's just like their consciousnesses are working together in a particular way and out comes the stuff and the sharing of it is then another level of awareness. And I suppose I just thought there when you were talking, it's not often people are given full permission to be irrational in the best sense of that word. Like they're just allowed to show up. And they're met by other people who value their presence and the fact that they're connecting. It just seems like quite a rare thing, particularly online. Yeah, I really think you can facilitate that. Though. I really think you can encourage that sense of quite deep and personal connection. If you ask the right questions, I suppose, if you ask the right questions that help people or invite people to find a way in. And making it very pertinent and reflective, I suppose, then us all kind of reflecting together on what does that really mean? Rather than just going along with a known ritual that we will have connections with or we may not, to make it almost quite specific and relevant to the time we're in, the experiences we're having, and to help people find their way into those experiences and make it meaningful can really make a difference. You know, I've experienced that so many times on retreats when people haven't often found a way into ritual, but, oh, that really meant something to me and they didn't find it so alienating. Some people find the language maybe or the words of the traditional puja at times. Either if you've done it a lot or if you can't find your way in, it can be helpful to open that up in different ways, open up 
puja, ritual. I guess for some people, knowing that space is there every evening on this home retreat, some people will be reassured by that, but some people might be a bit terrified of that. It's quite a space, isn't it, to open up to. And I think that's one of the reasons I'm particularly happy you two are leading this, because I don't think creating a safe space means making a nice space or an easy space. It's okay for people to turn up and be unsure or even a bit freaked out by the availability every day. You turn on your Zoom camera and you're going to be in a space where people will take you seriously and they'll take that bit of you seriously, even if you don't. That's quite a strong gift in a certain kind of way. Yeah, I think ritual is very important. A phrase that I use again and again these days is this idea of positive holding, this term in psychology. And a tradition, a Buddhist tradition, gives us a sort of vocabulary, I suppose, a language, a set of rites and rituals, which is often talked about negatively, but rites and rituals are incredibly important because they provide that holding and they provide that holding for our experience. I find it interesting that even in the secular age we find ourselves in, those rituals are still really, really important. The ones that have survived marriages, It's amazing how many people still baptise their children because it's still got a kind of significance, the blessing of a new life, whether you're going to raise the child in the Christian faith, for example, or not. It seems very important to people to acknowledge the birth of a child and the same with funerals. No matter how materialistic your worldview, it seems important for people to acknowledge a life gone by. I find those rituals really help me make sense of experience. A funeral, for example, can really help me see someone in all their fullness. It can acknowledge the funny moments, their particular idiosyncrasies, the quality of their life, and it can also contain the grief and the sadness at their loss. So a funeral, for example, can be a very happy experience, and they can be a very sad experience. mentioned that her mum's recently died and uh, she doesn't mind me talking about this I'll just say that it was quite interesting that because of the lockdown it was a socially distanced outside funeral with only seven people at the graveside at the committal but there was something incredibly beautiful about that ritual it was very simple in some ways but there was something about the elementalness of it the being outside the simplicity the intimacy of the people there, the earthiness of it, quite literally, was something really, really beautiful about that. And it was interesting that all that came out of the limitations of the lockdown. I certainly experienced rituals as being very, very important to help me process my feelings in all their complexity. Just to say a little bit about that actual ritual, in a way, if we can bring in what happened in that funeral into the retreat, That is what I'm after. And although, of course, it's a very weighty thing of a funeral, well, my own mother's funeral, the actual funeral was very beautiful, like Naga City was saying. We had lots of petals to throw into the grave and my brother's young children were there and they really enjoyed throwing these petals into the grave. And then Cody, my nephew, loved also tidying them up around the edge of the grave. So he was crawling around, he's seven, and he was collecting all the petals. And we had mince pies. The vicar had got us a little table and chairs and Naga City had got five flasks of tea and lined them all up and we were just having mince pies and tea. And the vicar sang a hymn on his own. Yeah, just because I heard he had a beautiful voice. And then I spoke about my mum. My brother spoke about my mum. 
it was quite simple, personal and funny. We just had stories. It was poignant. It was beautiful and it was light and it was a celebration as well. And it, yeah, it was very elemental. There was something amazing about being able to be outside, actually, and not in a church. Mm. It makes me think of something I've often found myself saying to people when I'm talking about why I'm still a Buddhist. I think there's one bit of the Dharma that maybe in a way gets underplayed as the comfort of the Dharma in a certain way. Again, not easy, but just listening to you both talk about it. I suppose there is something about the comfort of the Dharma in community and connection with people. But there's also something about its foundation and stories. I trust it somewhere, even if I don't understand it or I don't always know why I'm in this particular community or I've lost track myself of what my values are or something or why it even matters. There is a root comfort and relief almost in just maybe just entering space with other people and breathing with them and having this aspect of your being taken seriously again. It's rarer and more precious than we often give it credit for or something. Well, that's what's coming up for me listening to you talk about this retreat. I think we're going to invite people in in the morning sessions. They'll meditate together. They'll be together. There'll be some exchange, some conversations, some stories. And then I guess in the evenings, particularly with you, Mandarva, well, it's like, how do these things connect? How does story connect to ritual? How does ritual connect to life that feels authentic and that you're really living from the inside out rather than a narrative of a life, which is a different thing, or trying to fit yourself into the identity of being a Buddhist, whatever it is. Yeah, I think another aspect, I think maybe it does relate for me, that's become very important to my practice has been the relationship with image to a felt sense experience in the body and an embodied experience of image. So not just image in your head or in your mind, but image really felt in the body. So I'm trying to think of an example. Well, I suppose if you take the Bodhi tree or sitting under a tree is quite an obvious one. But if you can really feel the image of sitting under a tree or sitting under the rose apple tree, that is very much an example of the Buddha having a full body experience of something, but living in the image and that we've got access to memory or image, whether it's in an archetypal mythic sense or in a real sense in our lives, I can connect with the memory of my mum's funeral and really feel into that. And something opens in my heart and I can almost breathe in the air that was around us on that day, the sunshine, and something starts to happen in my body. And I'm really interested in that as well, in terms of how we can use image in meditation, how we can use image from the Buddha's lifestyle in meditation, as well as an enactment in ritual. And that's come from also my exploration at the moment or my training and somatic experiencing and people working with traumas in their life or things in their lives that have got stuck in their bodies or where they've got stuck with how they're living or what can't move on, what's holding them back. I resonated with what you were saying about the hopeful, positive aspect of the Dharma. To my mind, as I've said previously, I think the Dharma gives through the stories and the images, it does give a sense of a way through, a way forward, especially when you're feeling that sense of stuckness or lostness. There's a way of being in those states, but not completely in the thrall of them. That There's a sense of you can fully experience those states. And at the same time, you can see those states as a process 
everything changes, our experience changes, and we can use those experiences to move towards a more expansive, a more open, a kinder, wiser way of being that doesn't deny those experiences, but isn't completely swamped by them either. So the Dharma does provide me with a kind of guide, as it were, to move through that landscape. Part of the retreat we haven't really talked about is I've spent a lot of time reading different versions of the Buddha's life story and looking at it. And one of the things I do is I take a sort of stance of, well, how does this relate to my life now? How does this relate to our lives now? Because I do think the Buddha's life story is archetypal in the sense that we may not have left home to become a wandering monk as the Buddha did, but we've maybe had to make some difficult decisions in our lives about moving on, about separation, about getting out of situations that we feel no longer serve us. So there's a sense that these experiences are alive in all of us, not just an Indian prince two and a half thousand years ago. So I do really try and draw out how the experiences of the Buddha's life are relevant to us now. And also I think it's really important that we can see these things as a very step-by-step linear journey But I think all the qualities that are embodied in the Buddha's life are actually present in any moment, in any given moment. All the qualities are there. So, for example, in any moment, there might be the quality of going forth in the sense that there's a need to let go. There's a need to move on. There's a need to embrace the impermanence of all things and to live with that truth. So going forth, for example, isn't something that happens once and for all. It's a continuing process of fluid movement and i think every aspect of the buddha's life can be seen like that that they're all relevant in the moment and there may be times in our life for example where there are big experiences of going forth of moving away from things but at other times we might be in very stable situations but there'll be an ongoing sense of things need to be allowed to change and develop and we need to move on I was asked recently about myth. Did I have a kind of overarching myth of my own life? One of the things that really struck me was my father was a carpenter. And I don't know if this is true of other English-speaking countries, but in England, one of the names for a carpenter is a joiner, because you're literally joining two bits of wood together. And it did really strike me the other day that I think I am a joiner. In my artwork, I join together different images. I literally join together bits of wood. I do join together images and I create meaning. And I think I try and do that with the retreats that I run as well and the Dharma communication that I do. I try and join up imagery, say, from the Buddhist tradition, from the Buddha's life, with my own experience. And hopefully I join that with or create a context where other people can join up their own experience with these more archetypal images. So I really hope the retreat has that ability to help people join different aspects of themselves and different aspects of themselves to the Buddhist tradition that can, as we all know, can seem quite alien at times because you've got to get beneath the immediate cultural difference to the deeper currents that I believe connect all humanity, really. I really do believe that. Mm, it's a beautiful image. The joiner reminds me of the start of this conversation about Rivendell. It's the kind of place where these different traditions of storytelling yeah. and practice and mythology meet. 
in that sense, it's really well named. It's a good location for what we'll be doing online. Before we started recording the podcast, we were chatting, weren't we? And somebody mentioned bagpuss, which if you're not from the UK and you're not of a certain age, you won't know, but we'll put a note in the show notes. The story in bagpuss is that there's a shop to which people bring broken things that need mended. And there's something about that image itself that's just very beautiful, isn't it? As it happens, it's based around puppetry, which is one of the things that's going to feature on the retreat. But the thing of creating spaces where people can come when they're unminded and just be broken, not even with the narrative of being fixed or repaired, which is an aspect of that particular show. But one of the interesting bits I've always thought about Bagpuss is that they first dream about what the thing might have been, including things that it definitely was not. And again, there's something about that space just coming from this image of being the joiner or a space where different stories get joined that seems really important in this. I think it's interesting that we can often look back in retrospect and see the archetypes of our lives are often embodied in the things that we were drawn to or repeatedly drawn to. And I know in Mandarava's case, you were really drawn to this image of the Wombles and other 1970s English television program and having lived with her for a number of years I can certainly see the connection with the Wombles because you are someone who what was the theme tune the stuff that everyday folk leave behind Um, yeah Yeah. you're certainly someone who makes things out of the stuff that everyday folk leave behind and you create a certain sort of magic with that what's often overlooked you bring out a certain sort of beauty in it Remember you're a Womble. Remember you're a Womble, (laughs) indeed. I think you need to really remember you're a Womble. Yeah. I suppose there is something about all those old children's stories, those children's programmes that were on. I was thinking also of Mr Ben and him going in his outfits, going to this shop and changing to different outfits and end up in different worlds, wouldn't he? And the clangers and their world and I think I am drawn to that idea of re-enchantment or being with the broken and kind of mending it but it being all right still being broken it's been tended to yeah there's been some tenderness or tendering in relation to these discarded bits of ourselves more the everyday as well (laughs) that's another sentence from the one isn't it the everyday yeah That does really interest me about how I practice and also relating to the ordinariness of us in comparison to the Buddha's life, but finding our individual broken, clunky, whoever we are sort of way, honouring those kind of spiritual yearnings or longings and somehow bringing in a bit of magic or a bit of creativity in there. This makes me look forward to the retreat a lot. It's like the uses of enchantment as a way into the Buddha's path. I also like the idea of all the broken kids get to go and hang out with the Buddha in the forest. (laughs) It's like you don't have to be sorted to tread that particular path. It's not limited to people who feel lost or broken, but actually there are very few traditions that make it really explicit that you belong in that state. And the stories of the Buddha wandering for a long time and just collecting people people drawn to the safe space of that that you can come and be a total mess and totally confused and not really know the answer and all these people asking the buddha questions and the buddha not really answering the question a lot of the time just attending to the presence of the person and the fact that they're in that state of they want to know 
I think it's incredibly important with the Buddha. I mean, I come back to the man who went forth, for example, the man who was almost driven out of his mind by existential angst, what life was about. If we're to believe the accounts, he's someone with all the riches that society could offer at that time. He's still not happy and he's wondering why. And then he goes on this kind of slightly desperate search for answers and he takes some spectacular wrong turns during that search. As I mentioned, he takes up these ascetic practices and they nearly kill him and he becomes very sick. And then he has the courage to do a complete U-turn, to give up his reputation, to sort of almost go forth again into something else. And then, of course, he has to face the darkest recesses of his own mind and respond to that and interestingly he responds to that with a great deal of acceptance and calmness and kindness so i think it's really important to view the buddha not as this kind of superhuman figure but as a very real person who's engaged in a process which is as messy and as complicated as our own process and journey through this life and that feels very, very important to me. And for a long time, you know, I, I couldn't really relate to the Buddha when he was just this beautiful golden figure who got it right all the time. And it was only later looking under the surface a bit more and, and looking more deeply at the story of his life that I began to see more of a figure I could actually relate to. I was just thinking about that in terms of what we're living through now and people just going through lots of questioning and, well, they've been forced to maybe not be living the lives they were. And in terms of the image of Mara's attack, lots of questions, lots of reassessing, maybe identities falling away and then having to find a new way forward. Yeah, I think at the moment, the Buddha's life story is really helpful and could be very relevant to what we've been going through recently. So in a way, that's the invitation, if you're listening, is to come and walk in the footsteps of the Buddha with Andarva Nagasiddhi. The retreat is going to be online from April 23rd to the 29th. You can already go and check out some of the details at buddhacenter.com forward slash live. And you'll see the event there with some absolutely beautiful images that I encourage you to just go and take in, let them soak into your mind of a morning or evening. And in time, we'll have some more resources up for anybody who wants to register for this retreat. One of the things, the joys of my particular job is to get to build spaces online where some of this gets to live for however long the internet lasts. Who knows however long the internet lasts? That's an interesting question for the future. But for now, it's just enough to know that this retreat is there if you want to come and take part in it. And take part in it can mean all sorts of things. It might be that you come every day to the events, the meditation and practice in the morning and the storytelling and ritual and sitting in the evening. It might also just mean making some sort of connection with the fact that it's happening. We'll have community spaces for people to connect each other too. But whatever you can manage, I'd encourage you to come and walk in the footsteps of the Buddha with the team from Rivendell and take in the beauty of that. You can also meditate with us any weekday, really, Monday to Saturday, twice a day. You can go to thebuddhacenter.com, find the links for meditation. And yeah, you can download more episodes of this podcast. Just stay connected with your community, wherever you are like-minded hearts is how I like to think of it. People who are just questing, asking questions, wondering, watching the wombles, listening to music from their childhood, remembering things that matter and things that they want to keep alive. 
My thanks particularly to Mandarva and City today for just being open with all of that, really, just entering the space of conversation, which isn't always the easiest thing to do, really, to show up and be authentic on demand, but you two seem to know how to do it. I think one of the things that communicates is how much you like working together. (laughs) I'm not going to tell people listening the mimicry that's going on on screen at the moment where they're literally strangling each other on camera. But anyway, thank you both. Well, thank you very much indeed for the invitation. It's a real pleasure. And there's nothing more I love doing than sharing the Dharma, sharing what I care about, sharing meaningful images with people and and joining them up, as I said. It's great to have this opportunity to work with Mandarava. So thank you both. Yes, I really look forward to those of you that come and join us and hopefully we can bring some magic through the screens to your homes in new and interesting ways. So, yeah do come along thank you well i hope you both remain well all the way through to late april when we're going to be all met together on retreat and yeah wherever you're listening to this i hope you're well i hope your loved ones are well or at least that you've got the support you need if you're struggling with any aspect of the more than slightly normal weirdness of the world the world's always fairly weird but it's particularly weird at the moment yeah hopefully hearing these stories about practice about the tenderness of the dharma life is something that matters we'll be back in the next few weeks you'll hear more voices from around the world from different parts of our community but for now take care of yourselves and we'll see you again soon